Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's going on? How are you this week? I'm great. I I saw that we had some listeners that were checking out some really old episodes of Sandy and Nora, and I listened to the start of one while I was like editing our last week episode. Ooh, I cannot do that. I can't do that. <laughs> I wasn't listening to the content because I can't do that. Either. I can't. I can't. I can't do that. No, that's just too much for me. One listen ever. And that's the, <laughs> the the QA listen before we publish. I can't, I can't exactly. <laughs> um, but the way that we we started originally was a lot more peppy. And even though I feel like pretty happy, you know, I've got a glass of red wine. It's Sunday night. Um, we were really peppy in the start of this podcast. Oh, that if you, if there was anything that was going to um, secure the fact, guarantee that I will never listen back. <laughs> <laughs> those old episodes that was it i'm not gonna be doing it no thank you no eh? nope i mean you all should i hope it's good i just can't do that <laughs> i can't live that life but you know it wouldn't be you know the worst thing given how right we've been about so much oh yeah great point yeah that i mean that's been pretty cool you know like i i do recall that we've made a whole bunch of predictions and a whole bunch of analysis on things uh, that have happened politically uh, over the last, what has it been now? Almost three years. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I mean, a lot of what we said has borne out. And so uh, while I will not be listening back <laughs> to our old conversations, it might be good for other people to take a listen and uh, just... Um, reconfirm for yourselves that we are a podcast worth listening to because we're <laughs> some pretty smart women. Yeah, I can only imagine what it's like to listen to that stuff without the cringe factor of hearing yourself three years ago do analysis. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. It is true, though. I mean, it's been a pretty incredible uh, couple of years. And, you know, normally we would be taking a couple of weeks off. It's the summer. Um, we go into reruns. <laughs> we don't actually, but but we do normally take some time off in the summer. And this year, I mean, there's no reason to because, fuck, there's nothing to do. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> so I don't know about you, but like I'm definitely feeling a bit introspective, a little bit... Um, like trying to figure out what exactly we've been trying to achieve with this podcast and what that means to be like, right all, all the time. I mean, the the discussion that's happening right now in Ontario about kids going back to school is interesting because it places me right back into April and May where Quebec was having the same debate. And on that issue, I was very opposed to schools being open and schools opened mm -hmm. and there was no major outbreaks. I mean, there was literally a single big outbreak in one classroom in the whole province. And overall, the outbreak rate remain the same as the average population. And so I can quite happily say that my fears were not borne out. Things were very, very good. I'm not saying that people in Ontario shouldn't worry because the Quebec conditions were different. Our class sizes were actually small. Sorry, guys. Um, but it was an interesting moment where I was like, man, I was pretty wrong and I was pretty proud to be wrong. And I'm happy that I was wrong because of course my kids have to go back. But man, that does not happen very often. <laughs> no, it doesn't. I mean, even this week, I... Um, shared with you this article um, on uh, the Kielbergers and how it was just like kind of interrogating the We Charity or We Foundation or 
uh, MeToo or I don't know, whatever corporation <laughs> we're referring to today that is connected to the Kielbergers because, of course, through the course of this scandal, we've realized that there's um, several more than just uh, me to we or we or whatever. Um, uh, but in any case, this article that I shared with you was was discussing how um, staff of one of those organizations, maybe multiple of those organizations, were told to go to a holiday party in Toronto um, that was being hosted by Bill Morneau and was uh, going to be uh, helping his political career. And I mean, the staff didn't know um, that that was the purpose for the party. And a lot of the staff were opposed to going altogether because they couldn't uh, tell why it was related to their work, to their employment. Uh, but uh, the the leadership at We Charity uh, were, were very forceful in trying to make their staff go to this party. And it's just one of the things that we were talking about just a few episodes ago about how the liberals have a bunch of these types of organizations um, that, that really uh, one of their main purposes are to uh, funnel support to the party, whether that support is manufactured or actually like an organized sort of support. So we're right again. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so in case you're not sure what this episode is going to be about, it's summer retrospection on how we're right. And Sammy, <laughs> how, how, how can we, you know, we shouldn't get into this yet because we got some people to thank, but maybe before we thank those folks, how, how are we always right? How does it, How's that the case? Well, I th- I mean, that's, I think, what we're going to talk about this episode. And, like, honestly, you know, we're not trying to be, like, uh, narcissists or whatever. We're just, you know, there's there's a thing that happens with the type of experience that we've had and the ways that we've oriented ourselves where a bunch of shit just becomes really obvious. And we mm-hmm. want we want that shit to become obvious to you, too. Um, so we're gonna yes. we're gonna give you a little bit of some of the the things that we've learned over our uh, activism experience that hopefully will make some of these things more obvious to you as well. Because uh, you know, I sometimes struggle to know what is um, interesting information to other people because it it feels very obvious from my standpoint a lot of the things that I know and a lot of the things that I offer analysis on. Um, And then I'll like put it into words and the response will tell me that, well, oh, it's just not actually that obvious. And I think um, just a few uh, little adjustments or principled um, underpinnings can really make a whole bunch of things in our society obvious. Um, so that's what we're going to talk about today. But we do have a lot of people to thank. Yes, yes, we do. So thank you so much to everybody in the past week who has become a donor for the first time to the podcast. You know, we don't have uh, exclusive access to any parts of our podcast. And so everybody that sends us money, um, thank you so, so much. I mean, you don't get anything out of it other than feeling like it's wicked what you're doing. And for folks who don't send us money, I mean, you're awesome as well. You're listening. And so we're very appreciative of that too. But we do want to shout out the folks that have either donated for the first time or changed their donations in the past week. And so thanks so much to Jackie, Ali, Sydney, Jeremy, Claire, Jesse, Patrick, PBG, Ella, Heather, Tyler, Umu, Nafti, Charlie Rev, Andy, Isaac, Josh, Catherine, Ben, Elise, Kim, Adrian, 
Crystal, Bree, and Janess. And I also uh, have a special shout out for Emily Prosku, who I know is a fan of the podcast. So, hey, Emily, hope you're doing awesome on this Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, Friday night, wherever it is, you and everyone else are listening to us. Thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And, um, I, you know, I, I should maybe just mention as well that there was this thing that I was supposed to be at last week. Mm-hmm. It was a webinar um, talking about organizing in an online way uh, for the Toronto Public Library. And I accepted the invitation to be a part of this, not remembering that uh, the Toronto Public Library had supported an event of a uh, transphobic and hateful speaker, uh, Megan Murphy, and had refused to uh, to respond to like all of the protests and disgust that happened um, uh, from the public when they when they um, stuck to that uh, decision to allow that event to go ahead. And uh, the most that they did was put out this statement about free speech, you know, some bullshit. We have episodes on free speech if you want to take a listen to those. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> just some bullshit. Uh, so anyway, I uh, decide, I honestly um, uh, was reminded of the fact that uh, uh, the Toronto Public Library um, had done this horrible thing the day of the event and so I canceled my participation and uh, I'm also going to be following up with uh, some letters to the Toronto Public Library um, talking about how destructive and disgusting it is uh, that they are you know so casually allowing um, uh, hateful transphobia to exist in their spaces because um, that is unacceptable. And I, you know, I encourage other people who uh, are, you know, do events like this and who discover something like that about uh, a, an organization and the types of stances that they take. Like, if it doesn't sit well with your soul, um, and even beyond that, right, if it is a fucking hateful piece of shit uh, decision that they've made, uh, you should, you know, let people know that you're against it and why and try to use if you have some influence, try to use that influence to um, uh, make some sort of meaningful change. And so it's not just about refusing to be a part of the event. Uh, I am going to try to see if I can support all of the uh, trans leadership that has demanded that the Toronto Public Library change and shift their policies. And the Toronto Public Library has not, to this day, responded well to that. Um, in the end, I think they had to cancel the event. They said it was because of technical difficulties. I'm not sure. I know that another uh, panelist uh, did uh, also announce that she was not going to participate after I did. And so, uh, you know, like, we'll see what happens. Uh, but, um, yeah. F fuck that shit yeah like we don't have much power uh on the left or for those of us on the left who do these kinds of events but we do have that power we have the power to say no thank you and and remove ourselves um and uh when i saw that you made that decision i was very happy to see that i was not surprised because i know that you're ultra principled <laughs> but um <laughs> but the toronto public library really has to make amends for what they have done i mean this podcast is a very clear no Megan Murphy zone, uh, no turf, <laughs> turf zone. I like to call no them turf, turf fascists. Zone. No, no. 
Uh, and, 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 and seriously, I think it's, you know, th- this is one of the most important political questions is how people situate themselves on this, on this spectrum of gender, right? Are you one of these people who is like, fuck, yeah, there's tons of different kinds of expressions of gender and the gender binary is super oppressive and all these kinds of things? Or are you like, yeah, women are women and if unless you were born with a vag, you're not a woman. And, you know, if you're that kind of person and you listen to the podcast, uh, I hope that we can surgically remove that part of your brain and make you a better person. Um, and if there are folks from QP Local 4948 who represent the Toronto Public Library workers, maybe you should get in touch with Sandy. Um, and maybe there's another opportunity to do some sort of interesting events together uh, while your employer uh, supports uh, turf fascism. Yes, because uh, the union uh, there is actually on the is most definitely on the right side of things um, and has spoken out against that decision. And so if you all wanted to, to organize some sort of event uh, that would have the people who wanted to, to hear about online organizing, I'd be happy to be a part of that uh, um, uh, with with the with the union uh, there that has been, you know, working to to support calls uh, from uh, the trans community and beyond to to shift that ridiculous policy, um, that hateful policy. So, yeah. Okay, Nora. So, how the fuck do you know what you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I I wanted to just go back to a conversation that we had. Um, a couple of weeks or months ago now, you know, time is meaningless. And so fuck, maybe it was like yesterday. Dude, time is so meaningless. (laughs) (laughs) But it was one of these conversations that, um, well, there were, there were two conversations that we had that I think that are really good examples of what we want to talk about tonight. Um, you know, so COVID hits and everyone's all confused. I'm certainly confused uh, about, you know, what this all means. And one of the things that I spend all my day doing is looking at political decisions and how people are talking about political decisions and then trying to understand where that's likely to go. Right. And so in the early days, you know, uh, the government announced an, an agreement with Amazon, which I'm sure we talked about on the podcast. And uh, oh, this past week, um, that agreement has fell apart because Uh, The government actually never should have hired Amazon because Amazon's targeted door-to-door delivery was not actually compatible with how the government works, which is that they need, or provincial governments work, which is that they need a central location for distribution and then push them out for the networks from there, which sounds a lot like, oh, fuck, what's the the name? It's, uh, oh, Canada fucking Post, obviously. So we were right about that. But we had two episodes that uh, really did and do define this era that we're in. And uh, I think that it's a really good way to set this conversation up. And so the first episode that I want to just like remind people of was uh, the economy is code for white supremacy. And Mm -hmm. in that episode, we argued that anybody talking about opening the economy, and this was back in April, was was really talking about the the desire and the drive to maintain, to entrench, to enrich, whatever, white supremacy. And then the second thing that we talked about 
was just how dangerous the police were going to become during this pandemic. And, you know, not long after that, of course, there were several high profile cases of police brutality leading to death uh, or questionable situations that led to death. Uh, And then, of course, the defund the police movement really took off. And, you know, in the past week in Quebec, there have been three police involved deaths. Um, and so I'm not sure if everybody's listening knows this, but there was uh, a week, just over a week ago, there was a man who was killed after he was pepper sprayed for uh, during an arrest for shoplifting in Sherbrooke. Then there was a woman who was um, who had gone to her local police station in Drummondville in Quebec and said that her son was violent and was a, a, a danger to her and to himself. And the police were like, we can't help you. And then her son killed her that night. The next morning she was dead. And then the third situation that just happened was in Montreal, uh, where, uh, again, very similar to Regis Korczynski-Paquette and other situations that we know of in Ontario, um, someone had been arrested, uh, and not arrested, but for some reason the police went back to his house so that he could gather something to show them, and then he ended up falling off of his balcony and dying. And so I think that these two examples, like how did we zero in on them in April when things were still up in the air and we weren't really sure about what the pandemic was going to lead to? Yeah. And, you know, even uh, with just the policing issue, there was an article that came out recently, I believe it was in the CBC, I might be uh, wrong, that that talked about how uh, police killings were markedly up in 2020 in Canada, across Canada, compared with every other year. Um, So I hate to be right about that, but we were definitely right about that. And there was also um, an article that's come out recently about the ways that uh, police are issuing um, uh, tickets uh, for, um, you know, uh, especially youth who are uh, engaging in some sort of activity outside in a group um, uh, without the uh, acceptable, I suppose, uh, social distancing that the police are now empowered to enforce and how uh, the experiences of black youth versus white youth have been markedly different in that regard as well. And so, yeah, we were very, we were very, very right about that. And I mean, as as we're we're coming to oh god, you know, like it's we're we're past half like half the year is over, right? It's more than half the year is over, and the prospects for the economy are certainly not looking good for people who are who are um, you know at the at the bottom of that economy. I you know my um, to talk about a personal situation, you know. I, my father was laid off and worked at the airport and is now like having to consider whether or not it's just like a retirement situation because uh, it doesn't look like it's going to get to a point where, um, it, you know, he'll be able to go back to work. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there are people um, like executives at Amazon who <laughs> have been making um, untold amounts of money that have never been seen before. Um, And there are organizations that have uh, been supported by the government in particular ways. Um, Whereas uh, some people uh, are being asked by the Canadian government to pay back money that they got (laughs) from the Serb who are low income. And so, you know, like, how did we know? How did we know? Because it's not, nor and I 
are not fortune tellers. We're not magical people. Um, though that would well, be I cool. Well, I mean, come on. <laughs> We're a little would, bit. It would be cool to be a magical person. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not a magical person. Nora might be. I don't know. Maybe she's hiding something from me. But I'm. I am certainly not a magical person. Um, I mean, I'm smart. Uh, but I don't think it takes a lot of smarts uh, to figure out uh, what we figured out. And we want to make sure that as much as possible, we're supporting our audience also developing the types of skills that we have to be able to recognize something and make a prediction uh, that that uh, makes sense for how we need to understand our world, but also how we need to uh, demand that our world shifts um, appropriately so that uh, we don't get into these places because the more mm-hmm. of us who know how to make those types of analyses hopefully the more of us who can be can use our collective power to stop um, uh, this type of outcome from happening yeah yeah so I think that the first thing that's the most obvious to me uh, and probably is most obvious to you is that when you start from a location where you assume that as a white supremacist society, any crisis that happens will absolutely disproportionately injure black and indigenous people and racialized people. Mm-hmm. And when you have that as your frame, then all of a sudden a whole bunch of other predictions become pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. So that would be, I think, the, the most important starting point in this kind of discussion. And so it's like with COVID, you know, there are indications that it was going to hit the most marginalized. And and certainly that's what happened very, very quickly. And it happened around the world, if you're paying attention. And, you know, not everybody has a chance to pay attention. So fair enough. But the way that COVID has ravaged racialized communities across this country, I mean, part of it's hidden. And part of that, like it being hidden, is why it's hard maybe for a lot of people to anticipate this. And certainly journalists were not anticipating this. And we were not seeing columns warning about this in March, even though we could have been seeing them. Um, But knowing that that is how society operates helps to kind of answer or fill in a whole bunch of blanks that you have right at the start of literally any single situation. And you can pretty much be sure that it's not going to be the rich that are the most impacted. It's not going to be uh, white people that are most impacted because if it were white people that were most impacted, you would hear about it differently in the press. Journalists would talk about it differently. The way that victims of the crisis would be talking about would be different. But instead, it just became this like mass of death. And, and important to, to, to note that, you know, the vast, vast majority of the people who died were people with disabilities. Uh, sure, uh, older people as well. But um, among that group of older people who died, and you know, we're at 83% were living within long term care or retirement facility. Uh, and so that's people with disabilities. And, and of course, we've got a society that is incredibly ableist. And so it's not too surprising that who is going to be most injured by a health crisis would be people who have precarious health statuses or precarious access to health uh, or who are people living with disabilities, uh, with, with disabilities that also have such an imp- a profound impact on their lives that they rely on the help of others to be able to have a dignified existence. Yeah, and part of that understanding um, of of who is always going to get uh, the shitty end of the stick when something like this uh, happens is a just a fundamental understanding of how power works, who has it, and how do they use it. 
And so, uh, you know, our society, the way that it is set up right now, is such that the people who have the most power are the wealthy and are white. And uh, that means that whatever solutions to any large-scale problem that we hear coming from power is likely going to um, advantage those people and not consider um, other folks. And one of the the really uh, stark examples of this that has happened uh, during this COVID era is even the idea of social or physical distancing, just the idea of it. There was an an article that came out uh, this weekend in the Toronto Star that talked about uh, the racialized differences between uh, how social distancing uh, impacted or uh, was good for uh, particular communities. And it found that for a lot of highly racialized communities, social distancing didn't actually make uh, that much of a difference in, in uh, their in the prevalence of um, uh, contracting uh, COVID nineteen, and part of the reason for that is that you know we we already live in a society where okay, so you're saying go home and don't be around other people. Well, some people live in uh, gated communities, or some people live in giant mansions with uh, gates all around, and some people live in apartment buildings with multiple families in a very small amount of space who would be uh, um, deemed essential workers. And did the system consider those people? No, it it really fucking didn't, (laughs) in fact. And that's part of the reason why there's this uh, stratification in the way uh, that, uh, you know, the, the, the most one of the most important measures of how we control transmission of this disease actually just benefits those in power. It is actually in itself um, a, a solution that is inherently uh, white supremacist and inherently benefits the wealthy. And that's not to say for me, I'm not trying to say like, don't socially distance because that's a white supremacist <laughs> thing. I'm saying that the idea of socially, the, the, the mechanisms that we have to socially distance are laid on top of a society that has already been stratified by white supremacy, by racism, and an understanding of power and the way that power operates helps us to see that, oh, God, look, it doesn't matter how much social distancing is happening. If, one, we're going to be able to um, label some people essential workers, and two, uh, some people live in much closer quarters to one another than others, if there isn't something um, to mitigate those two things, then it's not going to work the same for all of us. It's so funny how obvious it is, right? Like if you were trying to design a policy that wanted to stop transmission of the most, let's say, vulnerable people that we know from global, like like global examples of who is most likely to get COVID, Canada would have... Uh, intervened immediately with migrant workers to make sure that they were actually quarantined, fed, treated properly, given good working conditions and whatever. Of course, Canada did not intervene and left that work majority up to 
the companies that these workers work for. And, you know, three have died. Uh, someone who witnessed or who, who was a, a good friend and who was in close quarters with one of the people who died spoke out about that. And he's risking deportation. And so there would have been a very easy public poli- policy intervention to have made to have tried and mitigated though that 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 outbreak or those outbreaks within uh, farm working communities. And it's not just Ontario. I mean, there's another outbreak right now in a in a berry farm in British Columbia. Um, but they didn't do that. Uh, or you can think of, OK, so if this spreads among low income people and we've known this for a long time, I mean, the city of Toronto came up with the race based data this past week, which is really great and important. But we've known for months that this was going to be the case because you can just overlay outbreaks based on poverty levels and then poverty levels based on racial information that we have the people in the city of Toronto. This is all information that like I have been tweeting about since May and I'm not a genius. I just saw the same overlays that other people were sharing online of the of the map of the city of Toronto. I mean, I I am a genius, but like this is not genius level stuff. This is really obvious. (laughs) Um, And and so we had we had public policy interventions that directly targeted people who were living in poverty. That would have looked like not the Serb, but it would have looked like full free food delivery for a month to their homes. It would have looked like other kinds of interventions like free daycare or free home daycare or whatever, like allowing people to go out and work while their children could stay at home and not have to rely on, you know, maybe people in the community to watch your kids because you need someone to watch your kids while you go to work, right? Like there's a lot of really obvious things that could have happened. And the reason why it's important to know, like to be able to forecast this stuff, I mean, other than to be able to have a reason to do an episode like this, um, is because like a lot of the country is staring down the fall and is staring down what September looks like in the classroom, in in elementary and in secondary schools uh, or in different industries or whatever. And, you know, any plan from any government that doesn't give more money and more resources to the poorest parts of the educational system is going to fail, is not going to be able to help the the kids that are going to be in the center of the next set of outbreaks. Yeah, I mean, I think we can expect, um, you know, in those places where uh, uh, class sizes are not being reduced and people are uh, expecting to go back to class, that uh, in poorer communities, that's going to result in higher transmission. It's going to be dangerous for teachers. It's going to be dangerous for kids. It's going to be dangerous for family units um, and whole uh, hosts of places uh, where people are living in co- close quarters. And then for those communities uh, where people can afford to make a decision, like I'm going to just homeschool my kid or I'm going to create a pod uh, with other wealthier parents and hire a tutor so that my kid uh, can get uh, specialized uh, attention uh, with respect to their education, uh, you know, that the, the decision benefits people who already have the power to mitigate their own situation, whereas other folks who are already on the margins of our society are going to be negatively affected. And that should be absolutely unacceptable uh, to all of us. And we should speak out against that. Another thing that I think that helps us to, um, you know, see some of these things is really obvious is that uh, I think And maybe this comes with experience. I'm not sure. 
But we have enough experience uh, engaging with so many of these people in power that uh, we have been disabused of all of the assumptions that are like, oh, this, this is, this, this program exists because it works <laughs> or this is <laughs> or this this whole uh, apparatus um, is is the way that it is uh, because there is a justification for it that we just don't understand but if we were to, to take a look at the inner mechanisms and and the the, the reasoning behind it, we would understand it. We, we no longer have those assumptions. And you should no longer have those assumptions either. <laughs> I mean, disabused doesn't seem like the strongest word. I, I feel like disabused is not the strongest <laughs> word. I feel like it's been like a full fucking explosion of these are not smart people. <laughs> yeah. You know what? There is so much of our world that exists on tradition like literally people are doing shit just because it's the way it's been done. And, yes. you know, uh, you know a little bit about history. I know a little bit about history. History sucks to a lot of us. OK, and if you're doing things simply because it's been done that way, then you're probably doing a terrible thing. OK, so fuck that assumption. Like, just get rid of that. And, uh, you know, God, like so many of these people really don't who are in power making these decisions really don't know what they're talking about and i think that that really came to the fore with discussions about the police this summer because so many people had these assumptions that oh well the police must be a, a force for good they must be heroic because that's what i see on my propaganda screen every day when i watch whatever um you know crime based brooklyn 99 shows that <laughs> sure which is what great you say, brooklyn 99 yeah I, i've never I don't I don't watch police shows. I just I've never been into them, but I actually watched Third Watch back in like the late nineties, I guess, or early two thousands. That was good. But it was also propaganda. In any case, <laughs> it's like uh it's like, you know, there's so much out in the world that is there to tell you uh, how the police are supposed to operate. And so you make the assumption that uh they exist because they operate well. But actually they they kind of exist on tradition. They exist because they've existed for so long. When you go back to the purpose of their existing, you're like, ooh, maybe that's not a tradition that we want to keep around. Uh, genocide and enslavement, maybe not a good uh, tradition. And then you might think to yourself, oh, well, there must be a good justification. Like, we wouldn't keep them around if it was so shitty. They must keep us safe. And then just delving into the 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 data and the information that we have, you can become very quickly disabused of that. And that is just one example. So much of our systems are set up that way. And what it takes is like a willingness uh, to, to really challenge uh, the assumptions that, that uh, make us accept everyday life. Um, and when, when those things are challenged, I think you'd be surprised by how much of our world seems obviously bullshit. <laughs> I, I always had this like dream that Sandy and Nora could become like this tell all of all of the bullshit that we have witnessed within government. Um, 
<laughs> because it's just so much. <laughs> and and you see it with yeah. uh, the we uh, decisions, right? Like there's a lot of liberals out there that are like, this is not a big deal. We's an OK charity. Why is this the scandal that it has become? And I actually agree that it has become a scandal disproportionate to its importance because, um, I mean, long-term care has not become the scandal that we has and long-term care should be a bigger scandal. But anyway, but I do think that it's important and it's very illustrative of what we are talking about where the prime minister can say, oh, we picked this charity because uh, the public service did their due diligence and they came up with this charity and this was who we decided on. And everyone's like, yeah, that makes sense, right? And then you have to say, okay, does that make sense? Like, is this really a charity that makes the most sense to go with, like they have no history of administering a program like this. We don't actually know what the fuck they do. We don't, we know what they do in Canada with their wee days and it's kind of sketchy and there's lots of bad kind of news about this. And so, you know, if you assume that the politicians are acting in good faith and what they say makes a lot of sense, then, then you can kind of trust it. But if you know, if you know how these folks operate, like, yeah, there's a reason why Justin Trudeau's mother was not on We Day before he was the prime minister. There's a fucking reason for that. The reason for that is because she's now the mother of the prime minister of Canada and Justin Trudeau used We to boost his image. We know that. I mean, it's not that freaking uh, hard to see. So one of the things during the committee, I mean, you can watch it and it was kind of, I guess, interesting. Uh, you know, you've got these people asking questions to the Prime Minister and him answering. Uh, and someone sent me a text message uh, just to be like, oh, you know what? I miss the days of back when I was at the McGill Debating Club and Justin Trudeau was a member and Gerald Butts was a former member and he was really, really involved in getting us ready. And Arif Rani was a member and so is Julie Derzowitz or Dershowitz. I'm not exactly how to, sure how to pronounce her name, but Julie's the MP for Davenport. Arif Arani is the MP for Parkdale High Park. And they all know each other from the debating club at McGill University from one moment in time, right? <laughs> I mean, you look her up and then it's like, oh, and, and then Julie like hosted a fundraiser for Bill Morneau. Uh, which was awesomely crashed by folks protesting um, the way that the federal government was dealing with Post Canada uh, with Canada Post, and and so then you're like, okay, but Julie was questioning Justin at the committee level, and every one of her questions was like, Justin, don't you think you're the best guy in the world? And he's like, thank you so much to the member from Davenport for that really important question. I really do think I'm the best person in the world. <laughs> Right. And if you don't come from a place where you're literally paying attention to these connections all the time, and most people don't because, I mean, these connections are depressing and fucking boring, then it's easy to not appreciate that these folks were fucking university friends. I mean, this would be as if Sandy and I were at a fucking federal parliamentary committee and Sandy was the prime minister and I was the member for fucking Quebec. And I'm like, Sandy. What did you think about the we charity when you chose them? And Sandy's like, ha ha, Nora, so good to hear from you, my colleague. <laughs> As if they don't have 30 years of history. I mean, Christ almighty, like one of these ministers is someone I know from Ryerson. And I'm just like, what the fuck? What the fuck? They all know each other and they're all there, not because of their fucking incredible prowess or the, because they fucking scored really high on this one debate that they held at Mount Allison in 1992. 
but because they know each other and because it's a block of people that fucking knows each other and they were looking at the Toronto map and going, we need Park to High Park, we need Davenport, who the fuck do we know? And Justin's like, oh, fuck, I got it. Okay, I used to debate with these guys, McGill. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's like, I mean, we've talked about how... Um, you know, the, the media has not been great to us on these types of things because they could be a part of uh, making sure that we know about those types of connections that make it that help to make it obvious uh, that these things, uh, these types of connections exist. Um, and it would be great if, if, if that was one of the things that they were doing. Unfortunately, it's not. But I mean, gosh, there's there's so much more than just the stuff that we've talked about. Um, that can really, uh, I mean, just really shift your worldview if you just, you know, are able to do away with some of these assumptions. Like um, this morning, I saw this tweet. Excellent small um, bit of of a of like just a, a of a critical questioning of the way something that is um, so accepted and ingrained in our society that should, because it's so obvious really overthrow the way we approach a problem. And so the tweet said something like, man, I just was thinking about today how ridiculous it is that as a society, we take children away from parents who don't have a lot of money or experiencing some sort of poverty, give them to, to other people, and then give those other people thousands of dollars to take care of those kids. It seems like it might make sense to give those thousands of dollars to the par- to the parents who are experiencing poverty. You know, like it's just one of those things mm-hmm. that is just just accepted in society is oh, maybe it just work it just works. You know, there must be a reason behind it. Well, there is a reason behind a way that a lot of children are taken away from from their parents and a lot of it has to do with colonization and anti-blackness and racism because there are certain people who are more likely to experience uh, getting their children taken away from them. Um, or, or uh, uh, like more likely to experience being taken away from their families uh, than others. And the assumptions that we make about who is responsible for those types of things are rooted in uh, colonialism, white supremacy, anti-blackness. Um, whereas it could just be, especially you know, like we're living in this in this this uh, uh, you know economic uh, depression that. Um, by all accounts, is going to be worse and may have may already be worse than the Great Depression. Uh, you know, like we're we're going to see a lot of um, devastation, and that's going to affect families and children and the ability of families to stay together. And it's like, what sort of assumptions are we going to stick with through that, and what sort of assumptions are we going to challenge? Not everything is set mm. up for a reason beyond. Uh, these like really uh, terrible hegemonic systems that we're constantly railing about. And it's not just, you know, laziness. It's like literally embedded in everything um, that that uh, uh, controls how our society runs. It's literally everywhere. And it um, takes some, I guess, training um, or commitment Mm -hmm. to kind of see 
how that operates everywhere, but it operates everywhere. It's actually interesting that you raise that because I did not see that tweet, but I had that conversation with a friend today. Exactly. A friend who, uh, for the first time, uh, saw up front um, child services take someone away from uh, someone in his family. And I said that. I'm like, you wow, know that. That's awful. Yeah. And I said, you know that money that, you know, that a, a foster family receives X and the family that has the child removed re- receives nothing, receives no children. I mean, it's even hor- like worse than receiving nothing. And, and he was shocked. And so, you know, there's definitely a lot that is hidden uh, about the system and a lot that does not get explained, as you said, by, by, by the press. And so, you know, obviously you listen to this podcast, you know, our shtick, and hopefully you've learned a, a bunch from some of our, our experience because we have seen government like inside, like I have seen, I've seen going to Queens Park in Toronto uh, with student activists and see the only black student activist get a name tag that said custodian on it. And you're like, oh, okay. Like that was obvious. Wow. Fuck. That was really fucking obvious. Um, Didn't expect Mm -hmm. that to be that obvious. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Um, And you know, there's a reason why, why we learn this story as a child of um, the emperor wearing no clothes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really the best story. It's like, there's no better story <laughs> than that one. Um, and the fucked up thing about that story is that like in the age of Donald Trump, like it's just turned into this weird fat phobic kind of body shaming stuff. Whereas it's like, mm-hmm. no, no, no. Like the emperor has no fucking clothes. Like that dude is naked. And, um, and everybody <laughs> around him knows that he's naked, but they also know that everybody below them will listen to them and say, no, 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 he's not naked. And so you're like, I think that guy's not wearing any clothes, but they're telling me he's wearing clothes. So I better believe it. Cause they're not just going to lie to me. They're lying to you. at some point we have to interrogate this idea of reasonableness because that is what protects someone like trump from the like total panning that he should be getting um from like everywhere like it should have been you know for years people should have been saying in mainstream media oh another lie instead of oh we're just fact checking and it looks like he was wrong about this it's like the man is like constantly intentionally lying. And we see the same issue in Canada. It's like all of this ethics shit that Justin Trudeau has had to deal with, where it's like, oh, you know what? The, The prime minister has apologized. He said that he didn't know about it. It's like, at what point are we gonna connect the dots and say, so this has been um, like the umpteenth time that he has had to say those things. At one point, do we accept that this is a man who is an elite, who comes from the type of wealth and power where the rules do not apply? And he doesn't care if he breaks the rules because he's always going to be able to get away with it because he has his whole life. How many times did that guy went blackface? <laughs> he doesn't know. <laughs> He was young, Nora. He was the young, young age of what, 29? (laughs) He didn't know. It's just like this, this reasonableness that we're taught to like, you know, be reasonable. He was, this was a long time ago or be reasonable. He's changed now or be reasonable. He can make a mistake and another mistake and another mistake and the same mistake over and over and over again. Just be reasonable about it. It's like, no, the man is does not uh, deserve 
your benefit of the doubt. Stop assuming um, that there is a reason behind things that um, allows you to believe that somehow you're being respected in all of this because you're probably not. (laughs) 